What's your favorite food? Well, I like burgers. What do you hate? Fish. Well, we're having fish for the next 10 shifts. What's up, my brothers and sisters? Welcome to the Fireground Fitness Podcast, where we talk about all things pertaining to life on and off the fireground. The views and the opinions expressed are those of your host and that of the guest. Today, I have the pleasure of sitting down with Mark Robbins. This man uh, has had a diverse set of careers, um, which includes the fire service. And Mark is a fantastic human being with a tremendous backdrop of knowledge and experience and i don't want to spoil it for you so i'm gonna let him introduce himself so without further ado um, mark robbins i hope you enjoy so mark i am thrilled to have an opportunity to sit down and talk to you when i think about how where you've come from and the, and the career that you've led and i don't want to try and date you here but you're an older <laughs> you're an older man I am. and uh but I you've am. done so much and i look at the the things that you've done in your career and it's it's always been impressive to me and i'm always thinking man i why, why did he become a firefighter after doing all these other things and then landing here and then stepping away for a minute, then coming back? And that, it really just intriguing to me. So I want to hear, um, I, just introduce yourself a little bit and tell me a little bit about yourself and then we'll kind of, we'll pick all that apart and figure out how. Well, first, how let me thank here. you very much for inviting me. I, I consider it a real honor and privilege to sit here with you. I've been following your podcast uh, from the very beginning and, um, I'm really, uh, pleased and honored that you would invite invite me i i know that you could probably find a little smarter and better but i i appreciate you appreciate you establishing a new category <laughs> well we're we're you know hey man we're open to all comers so <laughs> take all well i appreciate that very much i it, every day i need it more and more but uh um so gosh um where would you like me to start well, um, let, let's start with like, well, so you're, we're in obviously in the greater Phoenix Valley right now. Yes. Did you, did you grow up here? Is this where you came from? I was born in uh, Modesto, California, San Joaquin Valley. When I was, when I was two, we moved to San Jose, just Southern San Francisco area and, yeah. until I was seven. And um, my mother suffering from rheumatoid arthritis and the doctor suggested we move to a drier, warmer climate. So uh, we moved to Arizona. Makes sense. Uh, many, many, many years ago. Um, there weren't stagecoaches, but it was close. Yeah. Well, we were talking earlier about yeah. the development. Yeah. So, you know, you live up here in the Northeast Valley. Yes. And I was talking about how, you know, back in the day, I would ride my mountain bike around Pinnacle Peak. We yeah. go climbing up there. And then all of a sudden, they took that away and then built all these homes out here. Exactly. And um, it's just absolutely gorgeous part of the valley. It is beautiful. Um, but it here. used to be just empty desert. Nothing. Just yeah. snakes, scorpions, and <laughs> Other forms of wildlife that still roam our neighborhood here. Right, certainly. Yeah, you're still on the edge, right? We are on the edge. Yeah. But, um, so yeah, so we moved to Arizona and, um, back in the day and went to, um, grade school in, in Scottsdale and went to Central High and then, um, uh, took a year off between high school and college and spent a year traveling with an international performing group. Really? Performing what? What kind of performance? Uh, it was a, group called up with people i don't know if you've heard about them they've done five super bowls and it's a non-religious just international singing group basically uh, kids from around the world just trying to um spread peace and communication and um setting an example that no matter where we come from it's really uh, the world is our hometown and the more you understand each other the better we communicate the more problems we're uh we're going to solve so uh, there were about 500 kids in three different groups from 18 to 25, and we tr- spent a year traveling around the world putting on performances and staying in folks' homes. That's really cool. So Do you it, still sing? 
I am an absolute horrible singer. <laughs> um, my other half will not allow me to sing in the shower unless I'm home alone. <laughs> oh, that's unfortunate. Um, yeah. Well, that's – but what a neat opportunity as a young adult, right? Yes. I think that getting out and – uh, experiencing the world and seeing, you know, seeing other cultures and visiting Absolutely. other people. What a transformative opportunity. And at that age, you know, coming out of high school, you're still, you know, you think you have the, the tiger by the tail at that point, right? But you really don't. You're There's still a lot to learn. You, oh my gosh. Yeah. And so having the opportunity to do that, what, what's one thing when you think about that period of your life, what's something that you, that still resonates in your head from that? From that experience, the one thing that has remained with me to this day that we are way more similar than dissimilar and one of the things I, I, I really learned, which has helped me all through my careers, is that it's, o- it's okay to agree to disagree, mm. that we can disagree. And by coming together and discussing matters of the day, whether it's in our families or in our work or in our communities, that there's always a, a resolution and a solution if we work together and respect each other. Um, do people want to be right or do you want to be happy? And one of the things I learned at that young age was to listen and to respect other folks' opinions and to ask a lot of questions and that, um, you know, and, and service to humanity, service to each other, service to our communities. You can do a lot when you just come show up with a smile and say, hey, what do you believe? Let's do this together. You know, we don't have to agree on everything and actually, nor should we. Right. Well, if we're willing to listen to one another and share ideas, yeah. well, and, and, and I think we could, there's the opportunity to leverage each other's ideas. And as we move, move an issue forward or whatever, you're only going to get a better product, right? Exactly. If you're trying to do this on your own idea yeah. and you don't let other minds who have a different perspective, right. per, let it percolate through their brains and, and let their suggestions influence what you're doing. The product you're going to end up with is very singular in, in its focus and singular in its perspective and, yeah, very vanilla, not very mm-hmm. creative, and not yeah. very diverse. Yeah. So it, huh. was, it was a great experience in my life. And yeah, I know that's... Yeah, then went to college after that. Yeah, where'd you go to school? Went to Arizona State for one year, and then transferred to the University of Arkansas in Fayetteville, the Razorbacks. Spent three years there for undergrad, and then I attended law school there. Uh-huh. Graduated what, from, what did you study in your undergrad? I have a degree in psychology. Oh, I explained some things. <laughs> which gives me the ability to do absolutely nothing. I No, I, I would argue, it, it, helped, it helped a little in terms of understanding folks. <laughs> I would uh, argue, though, that when you start talking about the law, yeah, right? No. What is the... the and I'm totally speaking out of school here because I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I will say my interpretation yeah. is that the law is centered completely around people, right? It's all about people. It really is. And, yeah. I, and I kid you. But it, it really was helpful in the sense of um, giving me a perspective on how to um, maintain relationships, how to um, how to read folks, which is incredibly important, not only in the in the law, but in the fire service and really in everything we do. The smallest governmental unit known to mankind is the family. Yeah. Um, and so um, it helped. It really was beneficial. And I was a trial lawyer for most of my career. Really? What type of law? Uh, I was litigation, did a lot of family law, did a lot of um, um, contract law, did uh, about five or six different areas. And so it was actually very helpful in terms of negotiation, in terms of um, addressing judges, um, handling courtroom situations. And so I, f- I found it to be actually very, very helpful. Yeah. So, okay. Well, <clears throat> none of that <laughs> leads 
intuitively to the fact that you became a firefighter. So what was the uh, what was the progression from was it was there anything between well between there, those things? Yeah, I mean, I represent a lot of firefighters, a lot of military, a lot of police officers. So I was around emergency services a, a fair amount, and and actually consulted uh, acted as a consultant to fire departments and fire districts. Um, in my career before I became a, um, a firefighter, but uh, from representing them, I would go down to the station and um, hang out. Uh, Phoenix Fire Station 27, I was at 37, just various ones, and uh, some down south, and really, really had a great time. This is while I was practicing law, and I thought, hey, this is really wonderful. <laughs> but that's not the specific reason why I joined the fire department. Right. Well, it is funny, though. There is a common thread there. When people visit the firehouse, do a ride-along, it is uh, people have a tendency to go, wait a minute. You mean you mean to tell me that this is a career? <laughs> and, uh, yeah, there's that, that part does attract a lot of people right off the get-go. It, was, but, it but, was amazing. But what actually sunk the hook for you? Well, there were a couple of things. Back when I was seven years old, my uh, we were living in San Jose, California, and my grandparents owned a pharmacy. And lo and behold, next to the pharmacy was a fire station, and next to the fire station was an airport. And, um, and those two iconic places were forever cemented in my young mind to the very time that way back then I wanted to be a firefighter and I wanted to be, I wanted to fly planes. Um, my dad was a pilot, my mom, my uncle, my cousin, everyone flew. But that's my first experience at a firehouse when I was seven and I, I never forgot it. Now, it didn't exactly start out that, you know, it was later in life that I joined, but I never forgot that shiny red truck and the happy people that were on it. And uh, that stayed with me forever. And, nice. Uh, so that's how it really began. And then, you know, uh, back in 1995, I had a friend that was a medical director for uh, a fire department. And, you know, I went down to the fire department with one day and I said, you know what? I've been practicing law a long time. I said, this looks pretty cool. Um, what do you think of me becoming a firefighter? And he stopped and he looked at me in a suit and he said, well... <laughs> most firefighters are in good shape. <laughs> he was very, he was an old friend. He was Ouch. Very, yeah, it, it hurt a little. I said, well, and uh, he said, if you're serious, go get in shape. Talk to me in a year. And so I did. I got in shape. Um, What'd that look like? It was really painful and ugly. Uh, I had a friend, a law partner that was a triathlete. And he had bad hips. And so he did the swim and the bike, but couldn't do the run. So one day he was, he was going to do a, a relay over in San Diego. And he says, would you do the run? And I said, oh, of course. I hadn't run in you know, 20 years. And so I went out in my neighborhood and ran a mile here and a mile there. And, and it, wasn't, it wasn't a long run. It was, it was 6.2 miles. But still pretty stiff. Still pretty stiff for me for a non-runner yeah. for a non-runner and i wouldn't i would say a non-athlete and i would say someone who spent more time in a law library in a office in a courtroom than running so i spent some time getting in shape and i changed my diet and i took off about 35 40 pounds and i went back a year i got my uh, 
renewed my EMT. I got my first one back in March of 1973. <laughs> I was, I think I was number 27, believe it or not. What was the, well, what was the impetus for that? Um, emerge, the show Emergency <laughs> with Johnny and Roy. Okay. So I was watching the Emergency and I thought, hey, that looks like fun. Because I was at that time, I was thinking, yeah, maybe I'll go to med school. Maybe I'll do this. Maybe I'll do Still that. Still trying to find your way. Still yeah. trying to find my way. Yeah. And so that gave me the impetus. And back then, you became an EMT in two and a half days. Oh. Friday to Sunday. Day. And you got your CPR card. And that was it. And so I did. I worked for a small ambulance company. There were only four back then. Worked for AAA. And uh, then went, to, went off to college. And um, so... A year later, took renewed my EMT and started working for um, Rural Metro, actually. Oh, yeah? In August of 96. And uh, uh, also went to medic school. So I went to paramedic school on my own and became a paramedic. So I was a paramedic for Rural Metro for a couple of years and then uh, uh, became a reserve firefighter for Goodyear. And that's when um, I had hooked up with a couple... Uh, Phoenix folks, Phoenix fire folks, and uh, they urged me to apply and got in better shape, and I did it. I just applied, and I was, at the time, I was uh, 40 years old and uh, 41 and uh, applied, went through the whole rigmarole, showed up for the test with about 3,000 people there. It was intimidating. Yeah. And, you know, hell, I was the old guy. Yeah. And I thought, you know what? Uh, there's only one reason dreams don't come true. And that is you don't get up to the plate. I mean, and so um, I just decided I was going to pursue this. I was going to, if I got hired, I was going to retire from the practice of law and just become a consultant. And I did it. I, you know, my theory has always been if I can dream it, I can achieve it. I learned that from my folks. And, um, I mean, you can get into the baseball hall of fame, getting three out of 10 hits and I was <laughs> right. only looking for one spot. Right. So I figured I'd give it a shot. So I applied to Phoenix fire and I was incredibly fortunate with the support I received and my dreams came true. Yeah. So, so let's talk about, I mean, that's quite a transition going from <laughs> practicing law to the fire service. Yes. And, and I think that, you know, it is a hundred percent. I mean, I would say it's obviously possible you did it, um, but that's quite a very foreign, quite a shocking uh, change of pace, and um, you know, and income. Yeah, well, yeah, that's yeah, not to mention, right? That's a yeah. big step. Um, how did that affect your family? You know, it was interesting. The other, there was one other reason why I did this, and and that leads me into the segue of how my family responded. My mother was sick most of her life with arthritis, and. And at the time, they were living in Scottsdale, and they had to call 911. She had emphysema caused by a lot of the drugs that she was uh, taking to treat her rheumatoid arthritis. And Scottsdale Fire had gone to her place, you know, but then Rural Metro, uh, four or five times. And I remember being there a couple, three of those times, and how kind they were, how nice they were, how caring they were to take care of not just my mom, but my dad, who was you know, very concerned about her welfare. And I never could get that out of my mind, how they do this for a living. They are nice to people for a living. Um, the care and concern that they showed for my mom and my dad, and um, they treated her, and, uh, you know, ultimately she, she passed away 
at an early age. But I always, I never forgot that. And I thought, what a wonderful way to live your life, helping people that way and in such a special and unique way. My family was a little surprised. I had two daughters, young daughters, and um, I was, I was uh, divorced at the time. They were, my mom and dad were, let's just say, a little surprised, <laughs> a little concerned. Uh-huh. You know, it's like, it's like, you know how old you, how old you are, right? It's like, yeah, I look in the mirror. Yeah, I, I see a young Sharpay. Yeah, they're like, listen, most <laughs> lawyers when they have a midlife crisis go out and buy a Corvette or a Porsche. What is this? That's what they said. Right. Why don't you go buy a car? <laughs> Why don't you get some counseling? <laughs> and I said, no, I, I have to, I have to do this. I want to do this. Yeah. I, I want to take care of people. I think it's a noble thing. Not that I didn't think practicing law was noble, but it certainly gave me a different feeling. Yeah. The other thing is, is I wanted, I was a single dad at the time. I wanted to spend more time with my kids and the fire life, the fire to service lifestyle gave me an opportunity to do just that. Right. And I felt like as a lawyer, I wasn't setting the type of example for my kids and for others that I thought would be a more of a legacy. Hmm. You know, yeah, you make a living. Yeah, you help people. And I, I, I believe I did. And I, I believe I still do when I consult. But it was a totally different feeling. I never felt that way about myself and the joy of being essentially anonymous, which you do just the opposite when you're a lawyer. It's about, you know, what you're doing, what you're thinking, how aggressive you're doing that. And the fire service, all of the... The folks I talked to, the stories I heard, both tragic and funny, really moved me. And I thought, that's the kind of person I want to be. Yeah. Those, those people I met, the men and women I met, that's, that's who I want to be. I admired them, what they were doing and how they were doing it. And the, the bigger part was why they were doing it. It was so impressive. It was it was really heartfelt, and I know I'm a little mushy about it, but I believe that the fire service thing that I've done is the greatest thing I've ever done in my entire life. I've never had a feeling like it since, and um, I believe that what we're, what we're all doing in the world is really helpful. The world needs hope, and that's what we sell. We're the, we're the best kind of governmental entity known to mankind. They call us, we show up, we help them, we go home. Then we get to go do it again. Yeah. I, there's a story that I've, yeah. I've told on this podcast, which is, um, it, it didn't, I didn't understand what it was until years after it happened, right? Mm-hmm. But I, uh, I ran into a house fire and, and pulled this little girl out with, yeah. with a friend of mine. And the, the mom, uh, sent me a Christmas card every year for about 15 years. Oh my gosh. And, um, it was the, the, the thing about that, the, the lesson, if you want to hear the story, it's like episode five or something way back, right? Yeah. Um, but the lesson that I took away from is there's echoes of it in what you're talking about here. For me, uh, I realized that the connection we have with human beings is really, really important. And, it, and this is in our own personal lives. And if you can get that in your professional life as well, right? Recognize that the work that you're doing, the work that you are doing is a service to humanity and yes. to your community. And I, I realize that when I reflect back on this, this lady whose husband died in that fire 
And, you know, her daughter was in a very safe space. We just happened to go in and get her. And, um, and yet the fact that these two knucklehead kids acted on behalf of her family, right? We went and did something. Yes. And that is the, that is the humanness of this job, right? Is the men and women on this job are willing to do something for and on behalf of anonymous, right? Just people, just these human beings out here who may, who call. And, and, and solicit our service to come and help them in what can oftentimes be their darkest hour. And so it is such a, uh, a proud moment yes. and a desirable thing, in my opinion, to want to provide that in the community. And so when I look back over the course of my career and I think, man, what am I doing? And, and no matter where I'm at, whether you know, as a chief officer, as a line firefighter, it is about the customer. And about turning all of my energy toward providing service there. You know, and as a chief, it's a little different. You're writing policies, you're directing traffic, you're right. kind of, you know, you're creating pathways so that the operators can get out there and serve the community. And it, at the end of the day, that is just the, is such a wonderful thing to be able to participate in. The, the other thing that meant so much to me, and, and I, first of all, I 100% agree with what you're saying. The connection is so unique and so, even in tragic circumstances, it's special because you truly, I know it's such a cliche in the 20th and 21st century to say we make a difference, but I have seen it. I have felt it to watch my brothers and sisters make a difference in somebody's life. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be so complex. It can be such a simple thing of, as holding a hand, right. of a kind word, of pulling someone out of a, a burning structure. Um, you know, that is truly making a difference to humankind. In a way that we take with us for the rest of our lives. I also wanted to be somewhat, I wanted to try to inspire inspire others to do what I'm doing. To I don't necessarily tell people they should quit their jobs and join the fire department. But you know what? Um, to get out of the comfort zone. The magic sometimes doesn't happen in the comfort zone. But when I stepped, when I had the long eyes and I thought, you know what? I want to do this. I know it's not typical. I know it's not ordinary. But why isn't it? And it's because right. maybe someone didn't have someone just giving them the push, the encouragement, the, the getting rid of the fear to say, you know what? This is possible. I'm not going to use my age or my physical condition as an excuse. You can't change your age unless you die, but you can change how you look at your age and tie that into getting healthier and encouraging others. Hey, how you're in, you're a firefighter? Yeah. How old are you? It's like, let's not look at the chronology. Let's look at, <laughs> let's look at the quality. Yeah. I'm know. feeling very judged right now. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> Yeah, but I think I, I hoped that I inspired folks and still do and yeah. and tell people that you can do it. If that's one of your dreams, then pursue it and don't worry about if you don't. Yeah. Well, so so let's actually so let's go back a step and talk about yeah. the one of the major hurdles that uh, a lot of folks face. I mean, first of all, there's making a decision to make a massive life change like that. Sure. Pretty significant. Sure. But. But the other piece of it is the actual physical reality of going into an academy class at 40 years old. 42. Right? 40, yeah. Oh, my goodness. So yeah. That much harder. Yeah, that much <laughs> so harder. So talk to me about that. So what does that, like, what, what does that look like on a daily? How do you survive that? And, you know, 
emotionally and physically and, and actually you know, drive on and be successful there. Um, you know, I was always taught by my dad. He was, he was in the service. He was actually shot down over Germany. It was a prisoner of war for a long time. Oh, wow. And he always taught me. He said, you know what? It's all about preparation. You don't, you don't necessarily have to be the fastest in your class. You don't have to be the strongest in your class. And he said, think of this as a, as a football team. There's 11 players on the team. Not all of them have the same role and responsibility. So figure out what you bring to the team and then strive to be the best you can at that team. So I spent a lot of time preparing in advance. So when I showed up, I showed up prepared. There were things I struggled with. There are things that were very foreign to me. Let's just say I was not the most handy person in the world. I mean, I didn't really pick up many tools until I showed up at the academy. Um, you know, a lot of it was foreign to me. But my theory was that if I showed up with a great attitude, a can-do attitude, and that I was going to, um, I decided it was going to be blue shirt or nothing. I was going to do it. And so the preparation and the attitude, and I went in with a mindset that I'm going to learn as much as I can from the people that had a, a different and stronger skill set than I did. So I went in really looking at what everybody else was doing and, and learning how to use a chainsaw better, how to throw a ladder better, because these are things I never did in my life. And so it, but I'd, be less than honest if I didn't tell you there were some days it was extremely physically painful. Yeah. You know, getting up at four in the morning, showing up five thirty, doing the deal um all day long. Um and you know, I used to use my mind only for ten, twelve, thirteen hours a day. Now I'm using my mind and my body as an essential tool. And the way I can talk to myself was everything that I'm gonna learn may save either the person on my left or right's life or one of our valued customers. So everything that I learned, I said, I need to learn this correctly so I can use it um, to help somebody. And that was my mindset. But, you know, I think the RTOs were a little surprised seeing, uh, seeing me in there. Um, my nickname was Rigor Mortis. <laughs> that was my nickname <laughs> on my T-shirt from my classmates. And, I mean, they were, it was great. They were incredibly supportive. They were awesome to be around. I had a blast. Um, but I also learned fire service discipline in terms of <laughs> not getting in trouble kind of thing, but following through on physical difficult tasks. I used to have to think my way through it. Now I had to physically fight my way through it. It was a learning curve, man. Yeah. Um, yeah. It was very humbling. Yeah. That's a very well, humble thing. The thing that's what I hear and what you're saying, the success that you experienced was because you approached it with humility. Absolutely. Um, if you tried to just bull your way through it and be like, I got this, I, I, I stand on my own, you would struggle. And I think that respecting the fact that having, a, I would call it a growth mindset, right? Recognizing that there's a lot to learn still. And yeah, you might be the wise old man, so to speak, mm -hmm. but there's still a lot that you can learn from people who have other experiences, you know, particularly in that environment where there might be someone who has, you know, who came off of a wildland, uh, uh, 
season or two and knows how to wield the you know wield the saw and wield some tools or maintain a saw or flood start a saw things like that like mm-hmm. these little things that jam people up and um and can get in your head right throwing ladders and you know const- guys who've done construction and know how to be on a roof and just watching them and maybe even you know having the humility to say i'm gonna i'm gonna learn from this guy and that guy and this gal and and pick some stuff up is it's huge it's really true i mean law is such a in many ways a very solitary lonely job because you're by yourself a lot you're thinking a lot the preparation but at the fire academy and when i was doing ride-alongs the teamwork was like muscle memory when i was looking at the crews whether it was being whether it was on a rescue or an engine or a ladder i just kind of looked at the relationship that they had mm. and it was it was just they could finish each other's sentences and that was really kind of mind-boggling for me mm-hmm. at the beginning it was kind of humbling and so I decided when I got to the academy that I'd use my ears and my mouth in the proportion to which I was given them. <laughs> so I, I listened and I watched a lot and it was really, it was intimidating. I mean, I saw guys yeah. that came from construction backgrounds and they knew about everything. And I'm like, what is this? What is that? What is this? What is that? How right. do I do this? How do I do better? What's a hip roof? What's a lintel? What's the, it's <laughs> like, oh my God. Right. Tongue and groove. It's like, huh? Yeah. <laughs> okay. You Tell know. me more. <laughs> so I keep keep talking. Right. And I had a couple of, um, I mean, they were very patient with me. I mean, and and I will always be grateful for that. Yeah. I mean, they really, they gave me a chance. They gave me a, a chance. And I kept my mouth shut except to ask questions. And it was truly one of those experiences where there's nothing I could really tell them. <laughs> what did I know? <laughs> You know, I knew about what I knew, but I knew that I was a good, I could be a good teammate. Right. That's huge. And I th- look at the fire service as whole, and, and we um, we are very diverse and um, complex organization, and we serve a very diverse and complex community. Yeah. And so it, um, it we are better when we embrace all of our various talents and allow those people to show up and bring the skills that they, they have to the table and and share with everybody what their capabilities are, right? It makes the whole entire team better for you have mm-hmm. all those different assets available to you versus you know, just a bunch of giant, you know, thick-skulled um, Neanderthals. Yeah. They're going to be able to accomplish a lot of work, but they may not have the, the nuance or the subtlety to handle, you know, some mental health issues or, sure. or I don't know, whatever. I felt like the other thing that helped me, I think, is I was very, I was the only lawyer that had ever been hired since 1886. <laughs> and so for me, it, it, I wanted to make sure that both my teammates at the academy and that through my probationary year and after, that they knew that they could rely on me to help them if they had problems. That I had a skill set that could help them if they had a problem. And I think they found some comfort that well maybe that's my niche now while I was a, I was a firefighter medic but you know until I promoted but I think that helped me in the sense that I was willing to hang it out there that hey if you if anybody needs me 24/7365 give me a call come over to the house we'll sit down and I'll help you with whatever you need yeah and I think that my willingness to do so kind of I mean people were skeptical I mean what I heard when I was getting um, when they were considering me, I think they're in a meeting and there was a, a news reporter, a concert pianist, a lawyer, and someone else. And I think one of the folks 
spoke up and says, yeah, but can they fight fire? <laughs> and it's like, so there was some skepticism and I think some criticism sure. of why are we hiring people like that? Are, are they taking a spot of someone who really deserves to be there? So I felt like in a lot of ways, I understood their feelings. So I figured, you know what? I got to show up. I got to shut up and I got to, I got to perform. Right. And I figured maybe at that point I would earn the respect. I certainly didn't earn it. I mean, just showing up wasn't enough. Yeah. Well, and I would submit to you that no matter who you are, where you come from, you yeah. have to earn your place. Got to earn it. Um, in any organization, and particularly in the fire service where, um, where trust is absolutely paramount to that working group, right? We talk about high risk work groups. Yes. The, the quintessential element that has to exist between in that team is trust. Yeah. Right. If you guys aren't, uh, unified, uh, with, with that value, then you're going to struggle at best, particularly when things get would get things get sketchy, right? There has to be some unity there, and that is born out of training together, working together, cooking together, playing together. You know, that's when you build that relationship and establish that trust. Um, and and regardless of whatever your background is, when you allow, and this is kind of you know, we talked about this before, yeah. the big V word, right? Vulnerability. Yes. And you're, you're you're allowing yourself to be your true self and and to build this relationship with people and to ask intelligent questions and and say, listen, I'm willing to be a teammate here. I bring this skill set, and and how can I contribute to the team? You, know, you talked about offering, you know, offering yourself to guys. Hey, I'm available to consult with you 24 seven, 365. Well, that. You know, this is uh, the sharing of talents is so, so important um, when we are building a team and knowing what your capabilities are, where I can trust you and where I can't. And and if I'm going to hide uh, a weakness that I might have, I'm not doing my team any service at all. I have to be willing to say, hey, guys, I'm I'm not good at at whatever. I don't know. Let's uh, pick a skill, right? Starting IVs in the dark. Yeah. <laughs> so if I'm if I'm on the in the dark spot trying to start an IV, I'm going to need your help. I'm going to need a flashlight. I'm going to need somebody over my shoulder, whatever. Um, you know, it's probably a horrible example, but you know, you get my point. And I think that that is, um, well, I'm, you know, I'm really happy to hear you talk about that because yeah. it is interesting because we hear people say, well, you know, you need this skill to become a firefighter. But the reality is that we're going to teach you the hard tactical skills, right? The, the, the task level work, we're going to teach you that. But what we can't teach you is the, the intrinsic values that, that come from being raised in good situations, right? And, and being raised in an, in an environment and learning from your environment and from the people that you're uh, growing up around. And even if that's a hard knock life that you grew up in, did you come away with that with any good lessons and values? And can you share those with us? It's, I can honestly say in my entire life, I have, it has really been one of the biggest joys of my life being in all, in those stations with all of those folks. I still get to do that. And I, I love hearing the backgrounds and where they came from and how they got there and what matters, what matters, what, what's important to them when they show up at work? What's the journey? Yeah. And how has the journey changed for me? Because I really didn't know what to think. It's like, um, what should I think? How should I feel when I see this or see that? And if it wasn't for the folks that I was with in those stations who took the time to not just tell me, but to show me, I learned some skill sets. I didn't, you know, as a lawyer, you, you kind of try to stay objective and you don't use a heck of a lot of heart. Your heart, those... <laughs> The, the vulnerability you're talking about. So it was a real 
shocker to me at the at the beginning. I always had that just because my family was that way, touchy feely. We love each other. We tell it. But at the fire service, I learned a whole new emotional skill set that I did not possess, um, but I knew was in there. And I just I just needed to see how it's deployed, hmm. and I did, and I still do. And um, it first responders are an amazing group of people. They really are. And um, every day I'm so grateful for the opportunity that I got to be part of the, of the fire service. Um, the incredible, brave, courageous things that occur every day, not just with the firefighters, but with military, police, healthcare workers. But I've really had a keen insight um, into the relationships we get to interact with all those folks and and it's an incredible public safety family and that's the other thing that's incredible it's not the same with lawyers or and, and a lot of times even with pilots um but with the fire service which I, is an odd segue i want people to yeah you are a pilot which is why <laughs> well there's that he threw that in there and so i just want people to understand that yeah. they're listening to this that mark's a pilot also we'll talk about that in a minute. yeah i was in uh, I took my kids on a vacation to um, Old Orchard, Maine. And there was a little fire station there. And I walked in. I wanted to introduce myself. This was a long time ago. And and I had some Phoenix Fire patches and some other stuff and a couple of some T-shirts. And I walked in. And it was like I was their long-lost brother. <laughs> and it's like I realized I got a big old family here where the the world – I mean, really is my hometown. We were overseas, and we went into a couple fire stations. Same thing. They know who my fire department was. Well, how was that? And it, it's very unique, and it has really uh, made me a better person and opened up um, whatever uh, boisterous personality I had before. <laughs> but I feel like I can go anywhere in the world now, walk into a fire station, and... Um, my kids were going to Missouri one day. They were young kids, and they were going through Denver. And I called the Denver Fire Department at the fire station to to see if they could sit with them because they had a four-hour layover, and they were young. Like, they sent 10 firefighters over there <laughs> to sit with my daughters. They, they heard about your kids, dude. They they like them a lot more <laughs> than me, rank, I'll tell you that. They did it for them, not kids. me. <laughs> and uh, and it, once again, it's sort of like it's instant family. And I know, yeah. again, it sounds cliche, my fire department family. But it's true. It's true, and I can prove it. Yeah. So so let's talk about – you touched on like, – you, you've you've had many hats, and you mentioned uh-huh. earlier you're, you said something like, you know, in your many – you said you're in your careers, plural, yeah. right, which is unique because a lot of people have kind of a one career, and they go through their life and do their thing. Right. Um, but um, you, you fly as well. I'm a commercial um, pilot. Yeah. yeah. And um, so what's the genesis of that? Well, what happened is, is my, my dad grew up and my parents grew up during the Depression and very poor. And my grandfather owned a junkyard and that's all. That's what they did. Sixth grade education. And one of the things my dad uh, taught me and my mom is to be economy proof. And that's one segment of it. So if you have multiple careers, you'll always be able to put food on the table. If, if one segment of society changes and you can't do this, you can do that. And support yourself. And the other thing was, is I started a bucket list at a very young age, mm. and I, which I still have. And I modify it all the time. And one of them was I wanted to be a firefighter. I wanted to be a, a commercial pilot. I wanted to fly jets. 
and I wanted to, and then other things that I've wanted to do. And so my dad was a pilot. My mom was a pilot, flew Stearman's. My uncle was a uh, strategic air command commander. My cousin was second command on the USS Guadalcanal and was a helicopter pilot and then a Delta pilot. And uh, so at a young age, I, you know, surround airplanes and, and uh, when I was 12, he had a client. My dad had a client that owned a Cessna 172 and said, hey, out of Falcon Field, said, hey, you want to go fly? I said, yeah. yeah. And I was hooked. <laughs> and so uh, uh, in the 90s, I decided, uh, late 90s, I decided to become a, a private pilot. And that one thing led to another. And um, in 2008, I was sitting at Station 41, and one of the medics on Ranger 41 was a lead medic for an air medical company and said, hey, we just lost our first officer. You got any interest in flying a King Air? And I said, when do I start? <laughs> and so I, on my off days, I started flying for uh, an air medical company, flying a King Air as a first officer, a King Air 200. And that's how my professional career started. That's so cool. Yeah. It's amazing to me. I think about the the like uh, opportunity uh it, it makes itself available to those who are prepared, right? Prepa so preparation. Yeah. So you here you are, you know, you have your pilot's license, you're kind of gone down that path. And mm -hmm. then somebody's like, Hey, by the way, by the way, you know, and an opportunity manifests itself. Right. But if you had not been prepared for that, if you've been like, you know, someday I'll take, I'll go get that pilot's license. I'll go learn how to fly someday. But you know, had you waited right to seize that opportunity, uh, or to, to prepare yourself or to get that training, et cetera, right. now you never would have, you know, so, you know, if there's something you want to do, go uh, do uh, it. Start doing it. And the theory was, and I always heard from firefighters, man, I get paid to do what I love. Mm. Well, why can't that be that way right. in everything I do? And it's <laughs> not that I didn't love the law. Right. It's just that it's more, it's, it's a very um, contentious pursuit. You right. have to, you have to be willing to take your lumps and argue with people and feel right. bad a lot and. And help people, but I love airplanes. I love looking up at the sky, and um, I thought I can get paid to do another thing that I love to do. And I only work ten days a month. Right, got you know, all the time in the world. I got all the time in the world, <laughs> so I started flying aeromedical, right. and then from there took it into other um, other areas of uh, aviation. Yeah. Yeah. Are you still flying professionally now? I am. Um, well, I was flying. Well, I was in the fire service until twenty thirteen, and. Uh, sort of retired uh, from, and so I started flying full-time as a corporate pilot, and that lasted until, and I was consulting with fire departments and districts and teaching around the country on medical legal issues, and so I was flying corporately until March, and then, uh, of course, with COVID-19, it shut down a lot of the corporate airliners and, and commercial airliners, so I stopped flying in um, March. I was also the company's director of safety, but if they're not flying, you don't really have to. Nothing to be safe about. Nothing to be safe about. Everything's grounded. You know, just paper cuts and car crashes. And so, um, at the same time, I got a phone call from my present uh, uh, fire department and asked me if maybe I might be interested in coming back into the fire service. So, as of April twentieth, I'm back in. Nice, congratulations! But I'm welcome. Thank back. you. Glad I'm flying you. corporately once in a while, yeah. and then I, I I also fly recreationally. So. I'll fly a contract flight here and there. Is there a, uh, like, do you have a, a certain number of hours you need to maintain to maintain currency or anything like that? Yeah. Well, to fly as a cab, was a captain uh, on the plane. So every year I had to go to recurrency. So right now I'm 
first officer eligible every 90 days you got to do three takeoffs and landings so i'm not current in the jet but i'm current in um the general aviation i fly a twin uh cessna twin and so i'm as long as i can get three landings and takeoffs in every uh 90 days in the day and at the night i'm i'm good to go so i'm current but i can get i can get back flying i can fly in a jet right seat right now without i just got to go do three takeoffs and landings oh okay cool so, yeah it's funny you know i know that we uh I've thought over the years about how hard it is to maintain currency in certain uh, aspects of our career, and um, yeah, we uh, we fuss over it a lot. And um, that was loud. Yeah, it was. We fuss over it a lot, yeah. and uh, but and yet there are other occupations where it is much more stringent. So get over it. Right? Well, yeah, and the other thing is, is I'm trying to inspire younger uh, aviators who want to be professional aviators, and so I'm spending some time. You know, taking folks up in my plane and and encouraging people to pursue aviation if if that is also their dream. I I, I feel so lucky that I've had so much support in everything I've done, but I also wasn't afraid to ask for it. Yeah. Um, and I never want to be the smartest person in the room because I'm not gonna. Uh, that's who I'm gonna learn from. So I sought out aviators and introduced myself and said, I want to be more like you and i want to do what you do can you help me and it's worked it worked in the fire service it worked in the law and it's worked in aviation where if you are humble and you go up to people and sincerely say you know what this has been a dream i've been reading i've been preparing will you help me yeah and you know what i've never been turned down yeah yeah, I think people are people are way more willing to share yeah. than you realize. I think it's our own fear and insecurity that yes. prevents us from making the ask, right? And and you have to be willing to, you know, some people might say no, but, but some of them might say yes as well, right? They might reach out and help you. Yeah. It's huge. I, yeah, it's like my dad used to say, fear, fear everything and run or face everything and rise. And I choose the latter. Wow, I like that. Um, yeah. And, and the other thing is, is we're going – Society is going through a lot of difficulties right now, yeah. as we all know, whether it's COVID or whether it's the economy. So I asked my dad once when he was a prisoner of war, I said, how did you get through this? And he said, well, Mark, there were two kinds of folks in prisoner of war camp. He says there were ones that would stand near the window and look at the stars. And there were those who stood near the window and looked at the bars. I was a stars <sighs> guy. If you keep your eyes on the stars, you, you can't go wrong. You, you really can't. You have to hope. And, and, that's, and really, that's what firefighters do. We, we deliver hope every single call. And you said they're at their darkest hour. So, it's, so whether it's aviation or whether it's being a, uh, a chief like yourself, uh, doing the great things you do, we have to be able to feel free to dream, achieve, and ask for help. And I hope in some small way that um, I can keep learning from others and um, and pass it along, pass it forward in these difficult times, because yeah. I think there's more hope than despair right now. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read a headline and say, "Huh, maybe I should feel that way." I'm yeah. gonna be just the opposite. It's like, you know what? If you ain't got a smile, I'll give you one of mine. <laughs> You know, and like you, every time I see you, you're always smiling and and you've been one of the guys that have inspired me, not just because you you came back from the surgery you had, but just the the journey you've been on. And uh, it just goes to show you there's nothing we can't do. Yeah, no kidding. 
Well, you know, you talked – one of the reasons I wanted to sit down and talk yeah. with you is um, I want to dig into uh, yeah. what, what I would consider maybe a, a tender topic or a hard topic, right, which, sure. is, which is some of the legal issues <laughs> – Right. Yeah. This is. I know this is. This is your wheelhouse, right? And, it is. And um, you know, we. I, I had this thought, and this is when I talked to you originally. I was like, you know, we go out and we provide service in the community, and we get our hands slapped because um, because we go out and we get in trouble with the community. And um, and you're like, no, that's not where no. real. That's not where all the problems really manifest. Mm-hmm. And I was like, and that mm-hmm. put me back a little bit. I was like, yeah. oh, really? I that surprised me. So so tell me a little bit about. Tell me a little bit more about that, I guess. Or help help me understand where do we run into problems? So, and all you, I'll just preface this by saying, you know, if you currently are working in the fire service, tune in now because this is really important. And it's and even if you're not, wherever you live, work, and breathe, understand that this is about people, totally, and and, um, and the way that we interact with one another. So, so. Customer service is the holy grail of liability avoidance. Now, when I talk about customer service, I'm talking more about internal customer service than I am external. Now, sure, we have some other issues. We'll get in car crashes. We, we will have some issues sometimes with our treatment, but very little. Most of the, most of the problems that we have um, are internal issues. We've always thought of the fire ground as the real hazard zone. I can prove otherwise. If we, if I survey almost every case uh, that's going on in terms of litigation in America involving the fire service, I can, I can unabashedly tell you that it is internal customer service problems. That that it's either litigation between each other or our departments or our, um, um, we're not meeting the expectations of something. So we can talk about the real hazard zone now are the administration buildings and the firehouses. And here we are in the 21st century, and and while it is horrible that we're losing 100 to 125 firefighters each year for whatever reason, we're survival in the fire service also means surviving the events of our relationships within the, within the firehouse, within the administration building, and how we treat each other. So um, right now the hazard zone has changed, whether it's harassment, discrimination, hostile work environment hazing, pranks, social media is huge now, digital imagery problems, insufficient Mm -hmm. training, lack of supervision, um, uh, things of that that those kinds of things, risk management issues. So the hazards occur within the firehouse, how we treat each other. Looking at our culture, not just the culture of the department, but the culture at our firehouse, the culture on our truck. The culture, how we between trucks, um, and looking at all of those issues and saying, why are we having these problems? What's going on? Because it is all you said it. It's all about the relationship. So why are we having so much litigation? Uh, and it all boils down to internal customer service and and our communication. Uh, well, let me just say this. I think that some people would argue, yeah, that our society has changed. It has. Okay, tell me, tell me what you think about that. Tell me more about that. Well, our society has changed, but we, ha- we are in control of our own internal society. The society of the fire service within the department itself or within our, our work environment. So whatever's going on in uh, our culture external to the fire department does bleed over because we are 
we live in society. We right. live in our neighborhood. We're a cross-section of it, yeah. We're a cross-section of it. But at the end of the day, we've always tried to hire folks who represent, who are diverse in the sense that we represent the people that we pres- that we're paid to protect yeah. and serve. And one of the large problems that I believe, the whole genesis of this is the lack of communication, the strained communication. Are we teaching our firefighters how to communicate to the public and communicate with each other? How to enhance the relationship? Mm-hmm. We've taught each other how to throw a ladder. We've taught each other how to start IVs, how to intubate people. But have we taught each other how to be respectful of people that are not nearly like ourselves? Whether it's based on gender, ethnicity, religiosity, how accepting are we? Is the definition of our culture in the firehouse, well, this is how we do things here. Hmm. We don't we do not do things that way here. You know, uh, what's your favorite food? Well, I like burgers. What do you hate? Fish. Well, we're having fish for the next 10, 10 shifts. So I think a lot of it, the, the other half is we're all leaders. And a lot of times it's hard when we're living with our boss. And I know there are books out there from buddy to boss. But at the end of the day, we're still humans. I don't look at you and say, gosh, it's now, it's now uh Chief Gray, I guess I have to treat him differently than I knew when I knew Rain Gray. At the end of the day, we're still people. You can dress a cat up like a dog, but it's still a cat. And so sometimes I think that we have not spent enough time teaching our firefighters how to communicate with each other. And and most of the lawsuits that we have are based on the failure of, of three things expectations, failure of expectations, failure of the expectations of each other, failure of the expectations of public officials, or failure of the expectations of our customers. You know, And if you break down those three things, that's typically one of those areas broke down, and that's why we're involved in uh, litigation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we, can, we see it all the time. In, in all of the nature of the lawsuits that are going on, the retaliation. Oh, you, you're going to complain about me? Watch this. Mm. You know, if you think what I did to you on Tuesday was bad, just wait till Friday. Right. You know, those kinds of things. And then there's the supervision issue. Right. You know? Well, hold on. Before you yeah. move on, you talked about the breakdown of expectations. Yeah. So, so unpack that a little bit. When we talk about, you know, expectations, are you talking about kind of organizational expectations or, organi- or expectations from person to person in, a, in an engine company, for example? Yes. So do we have officers that are trained in people management skills? Um, do we have a culture that encourages diversity? Um, do we practice management by being there? Uh, do we have a process for obtaining suggestions and ideas and then putting them in the practice? Are they even welcome? Can I raise a problem without being uh, ostracized. Um, do we encourage people to raise problems within the firehouse or is that ratting someone out? Um, is there mob mentality? Are you as a supervisor being taught how to supervisor and are you afraid to supervise? Um, so I think all of those things, discipline, do we discipline when we should or do we discipline when we shouldn't? Are we managing these people or are we coaching? We, ma- we try to coach 90% of the time and to hopefully manage 10%. Of the 10%, 5%, you can probably solve the problem 
with system support. The other 5% were people who are voluntarily non-compliant with hopefully good policies. And that's the other side of it. I've seen fire departments with so many policies, I can't even read them. And when I read them, I couldn't understand them. So there's one, they're not, there's too many. Number two, they're not effective. Number three, you're not going to enforce what you don't understand. Right. And does it solve the problem? Does it meet the problem? And so uh, a lot of the times the reasons the fire departments get into problems is because they either have ineffective policies for a certain conduct or behavior, no policies, or they have them and they don't enforce them. Hmm. Um, and you don't have to enforce them with a hammer. You can enforce them with a velvet glove to nudge people back towards the middle because sometimes we never know why people are having problems. Why are you late to work? Man, you've been late to work every day for the last 20 shifts. You know, I'm going to have to write you up. What's up with you? Well, I didn't want to bring it up. My wife has got breast cancer and her chemo, boom. You know, so again, sometimes I think we spend more time worrying about form than substance. Mm. You know, we can be sitting next to someone in the truck and very irritated about what's going on. Without asking the simple question, can I help you? Yeah. What do you need? Let me help you. You know, I'm here for you. Yeah. Um, And so the lack of communication is the big thing. Now, the municipal official problem is, is what expectations do they have of us? Do we even communicate with them except at the times when we need money? And so, you know, they're people, too. And I use that very narrowly at this particular time in our world. <laughs> but um, is there a process in place for effectively dealing with them? If your station is in an area that's experiencing problems, are we reaching out to the people that may be able to solve them? Do we call our supervisor? Do we call our city council person? Are we allowed to? Right. You know, oh, that's beneath your pay grade. So, again, the, this is the communication between the strategic the tactical and the task level in an administrative sense, you know, where if I do something, I don't want to step on your toes. I got involved in a mediation where I was the mediator, where a higher up official was upset at one of the captains and then one of the chiefs for not asking the larger chief, you know, permission to go talk to a city official. So again, it's what are the expectations why are those the expectations? Are they fair? And so that's when we really get into the problem. Now, the expectations of the, the public is another issue, um, teaching people how to communicate with customers because mm. they're as diverse as we are, you know, and, and there's a method. It could be based on ethnicity. It could be based on cultural background. Um, are they from a foreign country? Do we have to treat them differently? What culture do they have? So we can communicate openly. Do we educate the public about what we do enough? Like we're at the we're at the store and they're complaining that we're at the store instead of, you know, why are you wasting our money being here? We don't educate the public enough, and they would love to learn about us. Right. And then the last thing is: is do we have responsible people in positions of trust? Are we hiring the right people? Are we retaining the right people? Are we promoting the right people? And are we educating the right people in a way that um, furthers our mission in the fire department to care for people, solve problems? But 
these are being the risk management plan is being failed miserably and it, we're getting lawsuits multiple lawsuits every day whether it's um you know i think the wrong person is being promoted so i'm going to try to sabotage that and one thing leads to another hundreds of millions of settlements within cities all across the country and i can really relate it back to lack of communication setting expectations and um you know what expectations does your boss have of you do those relate do those have to be the same expectations of the people that you are that are underneath you so now we may have a disconnect here well, who said you could do that you know so we become opponents rather than collaborators hmm. within our own fire station you know are we sabotaging each other we say we're not right but the lawsuits prove otherwise right i th i feel like there's uh, you know when i think about what the solution to this is um take uh, it all goes back to training right and i think we spend a lot of our time and energy and and rightly so we do spend a lot of time and energy on tactics for example and, yeah. and teaching people to be good operators which is absolutely critical um and i think about what you're talking about here and i think the the leadership component of training is really really important and what we end up doing yeah. is we we teach them we just teach what we've been taught and so it's kind of a inbred system largely right we've and, always done it this way right and we we you know i, I remember a specific training class where the person just said hey listen we just keep stuff at the smallest level in the in the house and i'm like hmm that i i like the idea but when you say that, um, you better give some context for that because I understand trying to solve yeah. problems at the lowest level. Right. But you have to recognize when you are not solving that problem appropriately or you don't have the, the organizational authority to solve that problem at that level. Right. When do you escalate a certain problem, a given issue or whatever? And I know I'm being kind of vague, but you know, at what point do you escalate? And uh, that is critical that we teach people how to do that. And then the, the um, – Emotional intelligence that it takes to be a solid leader in a in a dynamic environment like a firehouse or a battalion or or a city it it takes a tremendous amount of emotional intelligence and that is uh, something that we don't talk about right it's a little bit ooey gooey it's kind of touchy feely and we don't go there because it's hard the other you raise a really 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 important point and that is our leader our leaders have changed. Or have they? And look at our audience, who the leaders are leading. Is it different leading a 21-year-old firefighter in 2020 versus a 50-year-old firefighter in 2020 who's been on 20 years or a brand new one? So whether it's millennial or Gen Y or Gen Z or Gen X, are we can we deliver the same message as a leader? What inspires a 21-year-old? to do what you need them to do versus a 50-year-old or 52-year-old or, or veteran firefighter, however that is, is is the leadership style the same for every person? 100% no, right? So the, yeah. the I, and I say this, I've said this a handful of times, I don't know when recently, I feel uh -huh. like it's been on my mind a lot, but the, the burden of flexibility yeah. is on the leader, yeah. right? The member shows up with who they are 
and and you can't treat me the same way you treat Bob, Sally, or Tom. Yes. You know, whatever. We're all very different, and we all have different needs at mm-hmm. different times. And so, if you're you're my boss, you don't you can't come to me with the exact same silly bullshit that you brought to somebody else because I'm going to respond totally differently to that. And if you know, there are so many times, and I think this is probably a root of a lot of yeah. a root of a lot of lawsuits, right? Um, this is how I treat everybody. I treat everybody equally. The problem is, is you, um, how do I say this kind? Uh, I can't. You're a prick, right? Yeah. So you come in and you're like, well, I'm going to shame everybody into, into compliance. And that shame game that we play, it works for some people, but it doesn't work for everybody. No. And, um, you know, you, you have to be, you know, and it, and for some people it turns into hate and bitter and, and lawsuits and problems, right? For some people they're like, yeah, whatever. I'm just not going to work here again. I'm going to go work somewhere else right. and I'm going to move on. But um, that, that, that tool, that tactic, that, that style of leadership, um, a, a solid, well-considered leader is going to um, adjust their leadership as time passes, right? And we're in 2020. We have to be, we live in a new world. Now. Our world Things is dynamic. Are, you yeah. bring, your point is really fabulous because our leaders have to be as dynamic as the problems we're facing. Right. Einstein once said we can't solve the same solve problems with the same uh, methods that we created those problems. Right. So it create it, it. It really requires real dynamic leadership today, and in every facet of our fire department, whether it's cyber problems, cyber ca- we have social media cyber casualties. Mm. We have I call it social media uh, career assisted suicide, where if we know that's a problem, what are leaders doing about it my belief has been and and i'm going to stand by it it's very strong that if we would spend as much time on prevention of the very problems we're trying to encounter than we did the resolution of the problem that just occurred we'd have a whole lot less problems now you can say training is the way i'm not a hundred percent sure i think in i've been teaching a course in ethics and ethical decision-making in the fire service, a lot of it is if you can change a mindset rather than a vent, is it different the way you teach me how to wield an ax versus why I'm wielding it? Thinking, try before I pry. Well, it's the same thing in legal things. If you, at the beginning of a shift, if you have thought as a leader about expectations, but you don't communicate them in a way that they can understand them and apply them, I, I don't know that you're a leader. If, if, if you say you're a leader and you look behind you and no one's following you, that's kind of a problem. And I think um, sometimes we get too enamored with our own titles. Uh, when I got my first shift, when I became a captain, to say that I was a little nervous, I'm a good test taker, but the three people that I was surrounded with, I couldn't carry their luggage. They'd forgotten more than I know. So I, I got smart early. I said, hey, you guys need to teach me how to be a captain. The red helmet is merely interesting, barely interesting. And it's the same way with, and you're bringing it up. Where's the disconnect between the strategic level, the tactical, and the task. If we could bridge that and prevent the problems, the 10 or 15 categories that we are litigating every day, whether it's on and off uh, duty problems, which still apply, 
whether it's discrimination, harassment issues, whether it is um, promotional problems. Well, the promotion process isn't fair. Um, Oh, what are the other? I mean, you bring it up. Social media, drug problems, sick leave overtime problems and abuse, harassment, alcohol, um, all of those types of things. I really believe that if we spent more time talking about and you said it emotional intelligence we actually can teach that um it's called mentorship and and if i could if i was a young firefighter and i could be around someone like you i should be around someone like you just because i can excel in something i did before doesn't mean i'm going to excel at this task but you have shown yourself to be a leader so teach me it can be is it born or is it taught Sully Sullenberger, who I had the pleasure of meeting, says, it's taught. Yeah. I've gotten to meet a lot of other folks, incredible people, and said, yes, you can teach leadership. Yeah. But you have to be willing to be dynamic and change with the times. The problems that you have this week at one fire department, they may, their problems may be totally different in about three weeks right. based on the facts and circumstances that you're facing. Flexibility, you said it, man. Um, are we teaching people to be flexible or do we punish it in some cases? Hmm. Do we punish him? Wow. He's not like me. He's, huh? Okay. You want to do it your way? Well, watch this. And then we start those interpersonal problems, which leads to litigation. It's yeah. keeping a lot of lawyers, kids in college right now. <laughs> not that that's a bad thing, but you know what? There's a there's be- plenty of other ways they can do it. <laughs> better other ways they can do it, and um, I worry. Um, I'd like to see um, in the prevention phase. I'd like to see a lot more of the younger chiefs like yourself. I still think of you as young. I appreciate that. <laughs> um, I mean, you look a lot older, but I know you're young. Um, uh, to spend time training in the things that don't involve uh, necessarily a task. But the ta- uh, physical task, but the task of if we encounter this, what do you think of that? Right. How can we solve that problem? I'm telling you, prevention, um, education, the cost of education and training is far less than the cost of litigation. But the cost isn't just dollars and cents, Rain. Yeah. The cost is on the families going through litigation, lose, potentially losing a job, a suspension, a demotion a termination, and it, 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 it harms the fire service. Well, that's exactly where I was going to go next, right? Is it, is it, it puts a ripple through an organization yes. that is so toxic. Yes. And, and it just causes backbiting and conversation that is uh, unhealthy, and, and now people are questioning leadership. They're questioning the organizational values, and, um, you know, what do we even believe in anymore? And then you'll hear, you know, we, we, we don't discuss the disciplinary process because it's not appropriate and it's unfair sure. to people. Sure. But it does that in and of itself leaves all these unanswered questions and then they don't, nobody sees any follow up. And so there's no real follow. No people really understand what's taking place in the organization. The accountability piece. Mm-hmm. You know, one of the things that has always concerned me and it's, it's really a, um, I, I think it's a, it's an, a cogent point, And that is, is if you go to a football game and somebody's offside, they don't march one guy back five yards. They match, <laughs> they march all 11. All right. And it's the same with us. Oh, Firefighter Smith um, got in trouble. Man, what an idiot. But it affects all of us. So if I get in trouble, it's not Firefighter Robbins or Chief Robbins. It's my fire department 
blah, blah, blah. Right. And so we really, it's a, it's a team sport. Yeah. Success in the fire service and leadership. The leaders of yesteryear cannot run the leadership business the same way they do today. Right. Um, I think the purpose has to be different. The reasons that leadership is so important. Have, and it has to be shared leadership. You know, you're not going to be up at a podium and saying, here I am to save the day because I'm not saving anything without you. Yeah. And I think, again, you said at the very beginning of this podcast, it's the relationships. It's the emotional intelligence. And um, you obviously get it. Now we have to transport that, that emotional intelligence, that the dynamic analysis of how we prevent these darn problems that are every day. Every day there are hundreds of new lawsuits being filed from cities against chiefs, chiefs against chiefs, firefighters against departments. As as silly as um, somebody, uh, there was a case in California where a guy's nickname was Big Dog and they thought he was a little too high and mighty, so they mixed up his dog food in with his food. Mm. And they thought it was clever, and there was a settlement proposal from the city of uh, two point seven million. They agreed, and it was a bunch of whole other. How much dog food did this guy actually uh, consume? Apparently, apparently, a lot of dog food, <laughs> and it wasn't high grade. So the city said, "We're not paying it." And there was a whole lot of other harassment. Hmm. So he said, "Okay, let's just go to trial," and it ended up being five point eight million. Good night. And plus the attorney's fees, which is of course is important to all of us attorneys. <laughs> um, but my point is, is this is all preventable. Yeah. Uh, Gordon Graham is right. If it's predictable, it's preventable. Gordon's yeah. correct. Yeah, totally. Totally. What? Give me an example of, yeah. uh, of how people are getting themselves in trouble with social media because that is such a, such a prevalent uh, tool right now for a lot of folks or a prevalent place to spend time right now. I'll give you some examples. And let me tell you, it's most of the cases where folks are getting into trouble, they are suing. And their termination is being upheld by almost 99% of all the courts. So, and, and by the way, it's also being what people are posting on social media, including the likes, are roughly 38% of all hiring and termination decisions. Hmm. It's fair game. So you could apply for a job with XYZ Fire Department. They can say, please give us the passwords to Instagram, TikTok, um, you name it. Facebook, all of it. And we're going to review your uh, Facebook over the last five years. Wow. So uh, in San Francisco, there was a firefighter that made a racially charged comment on Facebook about Colin Kaepernick. Fired. Nashville, uh, a chief posted on Facebook, uh, characterized the fire department leadership as racial, stereotypical, and threatening towards member of the public. Fired. Uh, um was the conduct unbecoming? Uh, first of all, was there a policy? Uh, cyberbullying. Bullying. One particular cyberbullying event led for a firefighter committing suicide. Uh, constantly, it wasn't. A prank photo was left on a fire department computer as a screensaver. Suspended. Offensive, racial, provocative, inflammatory statements and certain likes can be problematic. Well, I didn't say I liked all of that. I just liked the first half of that. Oh, you're saying when the member actually hits a like like on somebody Facebook, else's content, like somebody else's content, oh. that can be because basically what you're saying is is I, I support that. I support it. Yep. I endorse it. Yeah. Um, 
So it can be used as a basis for hiring and firing. There were um, social media, there was a digital imagery problem where a firefighter was sued uh, by the department, this is in Minnesota, for false advertising, consumer fraud, and trademark infringement because he used a picture of himself in his helmet promoting his private business. Uh-huh. There's one. There was a California fire department uh, was sued and the firefighter for posting photos of a badly injured motorcyclist on Instagram. And the his hashtag was, the louder you scream, the faster we go. Oh, geez. Yeah. Um, there was one particular one where... Um, somebody posted, there was a, a decedent, a, 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 somebody died at the scene and they posted it and the parents hadn't been, uh, had properly notified. So the question is, is on the fire truck, who owns the phone and who owns the, the pictures? Yeah. Fire department. Yeah. And so, um, there's just been a ton of, um, Facebook rants. And um, there was one particular fire department where they didn't have enough money to support the Swift Water team. So there was, I think you may have heard about this, and a child died. They were at the water's edge. Uh, This particular uh, fire captain went to the city council meeting and um, let them know how he felt, which in and of itself, one would think that your First Amendment rights uh, our First Amendment rights, but there's a limitation on right. those. Well, as a private citizen, you have every right to go and speak your piece. As a private citizen, that's correct. Probably not a good idea to wear your uniform that day, uh. or to say I'm you ki- to tell the council you killed that child. Now that may well be true, but again, it's all in the delivery. Yeah, and the I always tell folks the level of. Um, Things you do in front of people on radio, in Facebook, on TV, in a podcast should be directly commensurate, directly equal to the amount of punishment you're willing to endure for saying it or doing it. And so uh, uh, pornography has been another serious problem. I know, And there's a Supreme Court case on it. And interestingly enough, I was speaking up at a, a fire department uh, in Colorado, a rather large one. And one of the females was complaining that she was not permitted to have pornography in her private room. And the, the chiefs were on the back. And so I was thinking, well, this could be the last time I'm here. Um, but it's interesting that everybody compare that with the situation with another fire department that I worked with, where every Thursday night was movie night. And the movies they chose were pornographic videos. And it offended a couple of the folks. Sure. Um, and so, again... The question is, do we have policies to govern these kinds of situations? Well, you know, and can I just say, yeah, I don't I mean, feel like there should, like, at a certain point, do you not, like, we have to realize that yeah. this is a place of business, and I don't know what policy you need to have in place that says you don't watch porno um, in your place of business. I don't know. I mean, well, <laughs> I and a lot of, of, but, you know, interestingly enough, it's like with hazing, a lot of uh, us over the years, have thought of it as kind of a bonding ritual. You know, this is right. how you get to be a member of our club. Right. What happens if that firefighter can never be a part of the club? What do we do with that firefighter? There's nothing you're going to do, Joe or Mary or Bill or Sue, to get into this club. We don't accept you now. We're not going to accept you down the road. What do we do with those folks that we invited into our fire department family? What do we do with them now? Um, we're telling them that they're not worthy of acceptance and membership. And so 
the question is, is, why do we need a policy for everything that a human can do? And again, I'm wondering if it doesn't come down to selection. Uh, if we hire the, we, we want to front load our departments with good people, with, um, you know, future behavior can usually be um, analyzed based upon past behavior. If you want to see your present circumstances, look at your past circumstances. If you want to see your future circumstances legally, see what you're doing right now. Yeah. <clears throat> and does Mark Robbins have the right to involve Rain Gray? If you're on the truck with me and you're not stopping me, the mob mentality, if you, a lot of lawsuits have been because you tolerated what I was doing, knowing full well it wasn't right, even with no policy. And that also gets down to the NFPA kinds of things where, uh, there was a uh, there was a death back east in a training exercise, and they used the materials that were used to kill five Denver firefighters many years many years earlier. And under 1403, it was prohibited. So this fire department took the, and training officer took the position that we don't we can't afford to comply with every NFPA uh, rule. And the court held, this was a criminal action, by the way. He was charged with, uh, initially, with uh, manslaughter, I think it was, or negligent homicide. Oh, wow. That it's a con- there are certain consensus things, what you just said. We shouldn't have to have a rule to know that we're not supposed to do something. But in this case, there was a rule. Yeah. All you had to do was read it. And you would have known that this happened. So the question is, is we can't policy people to death. Right. Let's see, there's 5,000 things that you could do wrong. So we're going to have 5,000 policies that same-day service fire department. And it, is that what we want? Yeah. Well, this goes back to your, your other point, which is yeah. you, you, know, you have all these, these ARs and policies Ugh. and you can't possibly keep up with them all. No. Right? And so a certain point, common sense and decency has to play a role <laughs> here. And, and, you know, and then you know, you, we talked about leadership a little bit. Yeah. And, and at a certain point, leaders have to be leaders. And they have to step up and engage. It's painful sometimes. <clears throat> totally painful. And it's awkward and uncomfortable. And Do it anyway. Yeah. Well, you have to, right? <laughs> yeah. If, you, if you're going to protect, and we talk about risk management, right? So yeah. if you're going to protect the organization, you're going to protect your people. Yeah. And, you know, and sometimes you're going to, you're protecting um, a, a member of your family who is stepping on a landmine. Right. Right. They're about to commit an act that is going to get them fired. Right. And if you go, hey, dude, that is not okay. You might be unpopular, but you might be saving that person's career. Um, so you have to act. You have to engage. I wonder sometimes if we should only have two rules in the fire service. One, and it's it's not a question. It's a statement. One, do the right thing. And number two, uh, we're here to help each other. Hmm. And so... Because it's all about caring for each other. We say we're going to care for each other. There have been courts recently that said somebody, a firefighter did something off-duty that was um, what was was not kind to a certain ethnicity. Hmm. And they said, he says, I was off-duty. I can do what I want. And the judge said, no, we're not going to tolerate uh, in society you treating people uh, like that when you're paid to protect them. Every third day. We're not going to tolerate it. I'm upholding your termination. He appealed it. It was affirmed on appeal. So I think maybe we do just say, let's have one couple of rules. One, do the right thing. And do I need to tell you what the right thing is? If your child did that, I'll say to somebody, uh, somebody I'm working with in a problem with the fire department, 
if your child did that, would that be okay? Or number two, if your child came to you and asked you these questions, what advice would you give? Well, I think if you're giving that advice, perhaps you should take that advice. Yeah. And we are in this together. Yeah. We are in this together. So we, my second question is, is let's take care of each other. And that means if I see you doing something, I'm going to say it. I'm going to say it nicely to the extent that it works. And I want you to do the same for me. And I don't think we can say we're a fire department family unless we act like one. And it's easy to do. Maybe the litigation says otherwise. But I'd like to think that there are more good things happening than the litigation expresses. But podcasts like this says we're here to help you, me, um, people of goodwill um, to help help others journey within our department. Yeah. You know, our, whatever happens at home or out in the world, we take to our departments and it may affect what we do during that day. Yeah. But we're here to, to help each other along the journey. But if we don't step to the plate and communicate, prevent, prevent the problem. Um, and I'm hopeful that this COVID-19 situation will allow us to step back and say, hey, you know what? There's some big problems going on in this world. What can we do as a strong team, the fire service, to stop the litigation amongst amongst ourselves? Let's set the example, not be the example. Yeah, I and love it. You don't need a law you don't need a law degree to, <laughs> to say what I'm saying to you. Right. You already said it at the very beginning. You don't need a law degree to do the right thing. You just need to be a human being with a kind heart. Wow, oh, I love it. Mark, um, go. Let me give you a couple rapid fire questions, and we'll we'll pull this to a close. Let's do it. Um, of your of the multitude of careers that you've had, what's your favorite? Fire service. Bam. All right, like it. That was fast. Um, do you fly rotor? No, huh? I uh, tried once, and um, I was uh, I failed miserably. If I was going straight, it was good, but he said, okay, let's hover, and that lasted 10 uh, seconds, and I was on my side. I was so, going to ask, I was going to no. say, fixed wing or rotor? Clearly fixed wing. Fixed wing, yeah. I don't, <laughs> I don't get that helicopter. I don't think I'm that coordinated. I can't walk and chew gum. Nice. All right. What's your uh, parting, parting words? Um, you know, I think we spend too much time um, in, in the world um, – doing too many quick actions before thinking about the possible effect. And so what I'm really hoping, and when I go out and lecture about, I can go out and lecture about medical legal. I can go lecture about how to avoid litigation. But I'd rather leave these thoughts, which I think is the prevention aspect of it, and that is Benjamin Franklin once said that a small leak can sink a great ship. So I would like, before people are going to do an act, commit an act or fail to do something that we ask ourselves very quickly, is this the right thing to do? Did I think about this enough? People will not always remember what I said or what I did, but they're always going to remember how I made them feel. Is this something that my organization, my family, myself, my God will be proud of? Is this the legacy? When somebody says, at my funeral, if somebody says, 
tell me about Mark Robbins. I want him to, I don't want him to say I was a great firefighter. I don't want him to say I was a great pilot. I don't want them to say I was a great lawyer. I want him to say I was a good human being who loved people, who cared about people, and used my skill sets to make everyone around me better. And every day of my life, I wanted to learn from someone else as to how my life can, how I can do something better, how I can um, think better, love better. So I think if we move it from a technical thing uh, to an emotional uh, intelligence thing, I think we have a real opportunity here. If we look, we may not be able to change what's going on at fire departments in New Jersey, although with your podcast, you might. You might reach them. It might reach them. I hope it reaches them. But you know what? Our world is the sphere of our present influence. I don't know if I can influence anyone at the Safeway today, but I know I've learned a lot listening to you today and looking at the life you've led. And so for me, my parting thought is, is think with your heart a little less with your head and always ask yourself, um, is this the legacy I want to leave for myself, my family, my department, my society, and my world? If you can answer yes, then you don't ever have to worry about everything else. Um, everything will fall into place. And um, again, I want to thank you so much. I love what you're doing. I think what you're doing on this podcast is critically important at this time, uh, not only in the fire service, but in our society. And I think I really encourage you to keep doing this. Um, it's going to help people. It really is going to help and inspire people, what you're doing, Rain. And uh, I want to thank you for this uh, really wonderful opportunity. Oh, thank you, Mark. I really appreciate you, man. Thank you. Hey, that's all we have for today, folks. Thanks, Mark, for taking the time to sit down and share your thoughts, your passion, uh, and your life with uh, with me and with our guests. Uh, if you are enjoying the Fireground Fitness Podcast, go to whatever platform you enjoy it on and subscribe. Then this podcast will drop in the middle of the night when you least expect it. Uh, if you have any feedback or thoughts, go to Apple Podcasts, rate and review this podcast. Feel free to shoot me an email. Uh, all your feedback is greatly appreciated. Now, most important thing, Take the lessons learned, take the thoughts and ideas, find ways to imbue them into your own life, make yourself better, build on what you're doing, go on out there and get some.